Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I'm going to wipe some of this water I spilled on my table off, and I would ask you to open up. We are going through the book of Psalms um, during our Advent season and Christmas season this year, and uh, our series is called Psalms of the Season, and today we find ourselves uh, in Psalm 146. So. You can find your place there. We'll we'll get there in in just a minute. Um, We're in the third week of Advent already. Can you believe that? Third week of Advent? And, you know, the work of Advent is, well, the first part of Advent, we go through some difficult work. It's a time of, of waiting. It's a time of preparing our hearts for the arrival of the Christ child in the manger in just a little over a week. And, and you know, it's in the church, we're, we're a little bit offbeat in comparison to the rest of, of the world. The, the, probably in the world's calendar, Christmas happened on Black Friday or before. And so, Right now, we're going through a season where everybody wants to celebrate. Everybody wants to sing all of the Christmas carols that talk about the baby Jesus already being here. And I love, I love, I love Christmas music, so I'm not knocking that. But it's a little out of step with the church calendar. I mean, a proper celebration of Christmas would be that we sing songs like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, Come, Thou Long-Expected Jesus, all the way up until Christmas Eve. And then our music would change into all of the Christmas carols, the joy to the world, and, and all of those sorts of things. And, and so we're, we're kind of at odds with the culture, even in our music war. You know, we are trying to you know, push off a little bit. Okay, let's wait. We're not, we're not to the celebration quite yet. But once Christmas hits, then we should start our season of celebration, and and, uh, I know that's a little bit difficult to do because of the way our world operates and how things are scheduled, and and they have have a huge marketing machine out there, and so it's a little bit um, unfair, but hey, we do have God on our side, right? But we do this heavy lifting, this work of removing stuff out of our lives, maybe the, the barriers and bricks of sin that we allow to build up in our hearts and in our lives, I'm going to tell you something. If you ask God to show you what you need to tear down in your life, I guarantee he will tell you. If you go to God and say, you know, I really want to do this work of Advent, I want to create the proper space in my heart and in my life so that when, when the baby Jesus arrives, that there is a place in the inn of our heart for him to be born. Because sometimes we're just so cluttered, stuff is built up, that there's no room for us to receive anything. So the work of Advent in going through that and exposing ourselves, that's a, that's a little... That's hard stuff. And, and then you, you compound that with, I mean, we're almost up to the shortest day of the year, right? It's coming the, on the 21st, and so the days just seem like they're dark all the time. 
I get up, I go to work in the dark, I come home, and it's dark already. And, you know, so there's just this small window, it seems, of daylight hours, and the temperatures go down, and so we have these dark, cold, rainy, gloomy days, and we're doing all of this hard soul work. About the middle of Advent, we go, oh, enough already. But I have good news for you. It's Pink Candle Sunday. <laughs> it's Pink Candle Sunday. So we have an Advent wreath. This year it's an Advent row, um, and the wreath is in front of it. Uh, I guess traditionally it should be in a round circle, um, you know, so that it's never-ending. But there are, there are four candles for each of the weeks of Advent, and we go purple, purple, pink, purple, and then on Christmas Eve, or for us, Christmas Eve's Eve, we'll light the white Christ candle. And so each candle has a different meaning, and, and purple is, in, in the liturgical sense, purple is the color of sacrifice, of penance, of, of all the hard work that we have been working on. But we get to Pink Candle Sunday, and traditionally it's called, in the Latin, Gaudet Sunday. And Gaudet, in Latin, means rejoice. We get to the third week, and, and pink is the liturgical color for, for joy, for rejoicing. And so right smack dab in the middle, just past the middle of Advent, when we just feel like, oh, this is hard work. Can't we have Christmas already? I'm sick of confessing my sins. <laughs> I just want the sun to shine. We come into the sanctuary today, and it's Pink Candle Sunday. Real men wear pink. So somebody told me otherwise, but um, that's okay. <clears throat> but it's, it's a vibrant color. I love the color pink because it's so bright, and it puts a smile on your face. At least it does for me. And I just thought, you know, we'd, we'd match the theme with the pink splash in the back. Well, because it's Pink Candle Sunday. And we turn our attention from these somber, difficult notes, and we we look and we see that we're just about there. It's like when you go on a road trip, a long road trip, and you're going down the interstate, and you know that your destination is way off yonder, and you keep passing the road mileage signs. You know you're a long way away when it doesn't even list your destination on the sign. And so, hey, I wonder how many miles it is until we get there. And you pass a sign, oh, must be a long way because it's not on the sign yet. But you get to the, you know how you feel when you get to the first one that has your destination and the mileage number? It still could say 357 miles on it, but it's like, woohoo, we're getting close because it's now listed on the sign. But then you realize, oh, there's a little, there's like six hours left. But then each time those signs go by, tick, tick, you're like, oh, we're getting closer. We're getting closer. The pink candle is like one of those road signs on the road trip that tells you, hey, the destination is almost there. We're getting closer day by day till we get to the celebration of Jesus' arrival. And so on a Sunday like this, the texts that are suggested for us are ones that, have, that, that turn our attention to reasons to find joy, reasons to praise God for who He is, what He's done, what He is doing in our lives. And so the, the psalm that we're looking at today is Psalm 146. And if you're able, I'd ask that you'd stand with me while I read it. 
it's a psalm of praise, and it is a, it's a song that is, it's structurally very simple, but it's theologically deep. And I want to read it for you. Psalm 146. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, right? The word there is hallelujah. Can you say that? Hallelujah. You're saying praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. And all the people said, Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's the word of God. We say, Thanks be to God. You can be seated. We're going through our series, Psalms of the Season, and I've tried to identify in, in each of the weeks uh, some of the undercurrent in the, in the lyrics of the songs that we listen to and we, if we're all really honest, that we sing off-key to in the car when, when they come on the radio, at least I sing off-key a little bit. And, but, you know, it doesn't matter because it's Pink Candle Sunday and we're making a joyful noise to the Lord. Amen? All right. So, you learn a lot about what humans think is important. When you listen to our music, you learn a lot about what makes us happy. You learn a lot about the things that bring us down, the things that we're worried about, the things that cause anxiety in our, in our lives. If you listen to the lyrics of our songs, you get the full depth of human emotion on display. And two weeks ago, we started our series, and, and we talked about I'll Be Home for Christmas. There's this there's this longing, this yearning for um, during this season to, to go home, whether you had a good upbringing in a, in a wonderful home or, or not. There's this undercurrent of a desire to, to go home to a warm, safe place where people love you. Last week, we, we noticed that there's a, there's a whole bunch of songs that talk about things that we want for Christmas. Desires. A lot of them uh, have to do with gifts or getting a hippopotamus for Christmas or two front teeth or things like that. But there's, this, there's these all I want for Christmas kind of songs. And we matched it up to a, a psalm that talked maybe about a more biblical list of things that we would ask for for Christmas, that God's 
justice and mercy would be made known in this world, in, in our own lives, but also uh, in the work that we do out in the world. And this week, with it being Pink Candle Sunday, it's Joy to the World Week. That's the sermon title, is Joy to the World. And there is no shortage of songs that have to do with things that are happy and merry and bright and joyful. And they're, they're just fun songs to sing along. I know there were so many of them this week. I asked Lori to help me out and find a few songs that, that just screamed joy to the world. And she was listening in the office and and she's like, this is a fun exercise because it just makes me happy. And it's true, right? When we sing happy songs, it, it changes whatever it is that we're feeling inside. If we're all knotted up and full of angst, when we listen to a happy song, we, we get these notes of lightness and brightness. And so, you know, there's a couple of them. We have Joy to the World, obviously. We, we sang that one. Then there's Deck the Halls with Boughs of Holly. La 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 la. I mean, that's fun just doing that, right? I mean, that makes you, that puts a smile on your face just when you do the fa la 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 part. <laughs> Tis the season to be jolly. That's fun, right? Everybody's smiling. Maybe they're just laughing at me. That's okay. If I can be your so- source of joy this morning, then I think my job is done. Um, Rocking around the Christmas tree. I mean, who doesn't like that one? Voices singing, let's be jolly. Deck the halls with boughs of holly. There you go. Yes, we add falala to everything. Feliz Navidad. You know, that's just a fun song. I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. Jingle bells, you laugh and sing all the way through that one. And then Lori, she wrote this one down. She said, Holly Jolly Christmas, it's in the title. <laughs> I mean, you only need the title of that song to get those notes of, of joy. But then there's uh, Frosty the Snowman. He was a jolly, happy soul, right? <laughs> Maybe we should have a Christmas song carol sing sometime. That would... That would be a lot of fun. But then the last one, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Let's get to this verse that says, soon the bells will start and the thing that will make them ring, sing right within your heart. I should have had Jen come up and uh, lead us through that. It probably would have been a whole lot better than, than that. I think everybody's smiling. Or at least if it's not made it up to your face, your heart is probably smiling right now. And so I'm going to tell you, it's Pink Candle Sunday. Let the smile in your heart make it all the way up to your face. You can leave this place with just a little more bounce and pep in your step. I know there's tough stuff that's going on in the world, and that's what week one and two are starting to deal with. But when we get when we get to the pink candle, we need to be reminded that above all else, Jesus is coming. He's on the way, and that should brighten our spirit. It doesn't matter what our circumstances are. God will give you a disposition of joy that's not dependent on any of the junk that you're going through. It just is. 
The joy of the Lord can be your strength, even through the hardest stuff in life. So when we're dealing with the tough stuff, just, well, remember the crazy guy in the bright pink shirt on Pink Candle Sunday who'd failed at leading the congregation in fun Christmas carols. And if nothing else brings a smile to your heart this Christmas season, I hope that's what does it. But I can tell you there's something much more theologically deep than that. And Jesus is on the way. Yes. Our psalm today is called a hallelujah psalm. The first word, the last word. It's, it begins and it ends with the word hallelujah. Praise the Lord. And there's five uh, hallelujah psalms or, it, or hallel psalms. There's five of those that close out the book of psalms. Psalm 146 all the way through Psalm 150. And these would be ones that I believe were um, recited in the temple every single day, the hallelujah psalms. And so as we, as we turn our attention there, we, we notice that there's this, this is the first one that builds this crescendo of praise all the way to the end of, of the Hebrew Psalter. And just like, just like our songs, maybe give us an accurate picture into what's going on in the life of the artist, the, the Psalms, if you read them, Psalm 1 all the way through 150, you get the full depth, the full breadth of human emotion and expression comes out in, in the Psalms. Each one, um, sometimes there's competing things in the same Psalm. You get, you get joy, you get sorrow. You get unbending faith. You get knee-buckling and crippling doubt expressed. You get hope, love, hate, despair, anxiety, security. All of these things, they're all present in the Hebrew Psalms. The consistent melody, though, the consistent melody line from Psalm 1 all the way to Psalm 150, through all the high notes and through all the low notes, is one of praise to the Lord. Hallelujah. Eugene Peterson says, whatever temptations we endure, whatever disappointments, whatever sorrows, all those dissonant notes are resolved harmonically into praise. Praise should be the characteristic note of a life lived before God. You see... Our joy, brothers and sisters, our joy is connecting our lives to a much greater story than our own. In that, we can find some grounding for ourselves. This psalm, I said, begins with the word hallelujah. It ends with the word hallelujah. So it opens and closes with this word of praise. And, and I want to look at what's inside the open and the close. So... Praise to the Lord encapsulates a message in the middle. And I want you to notice that although this is a hallelujah psalm, although this is a, a psalm of praise, it also gives us a nugget of wisdom, and it also gives us a beatitude or a blessing. And if you ask me, I... I read this, and I think that this psalm confronts us 
about all the places that we tend to look for happiness and joy and security. There's a lot of places we look, right? Think about it. And don't, don't just give the, the churchy answer that Jesus provides all of the joy and happiness I need. I hope it does. I, I hope that Jesus does provide that for you. But I also know us well enough and I, I see us going to try joy and happiness and security in all sorts of things in this world. Because like I said, the marketing engine is, is pretty big. It's overpowering in our lives. And, and I pray above all else that we would be a people who are deeply rooted in our faith in Jesus. But I'm also not naive enough to know that sometimes it's hard. And sometimes... We just go off running and we, we try and find our security in, in our finances or in our, you know, our 401k or sometimes when the market is down, our 201ks. But, you know, there's sometimes that we just want security in the bank and, and we find our happiness and our joy and our identity and all of those sorts of things built up in that. Sometimes it's, it's in the, you know, how many friends can I get on social media? You know what, folks? All those people aren't necessarily your friends. It's like manufacturing some sort of relationship. The sit down, face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball, that's real communication. Now, there's a whole bunch of blessings for social media, and I'm on it and I use it, but don't ever let that be the substitute for face-to-face, honest communication with one another. Sometimes people will go out and they'll try and find their happiness and security and joy because, man, I got 3,000 friends on Facebook. Well, who cares? How many of you spent time with this week? What happens when they all disappear? Maybe you find your joy and your security and your sense of identity in your career or in what you aspire to do. But let me ask you, what happens when it all gets pulled out from underneath you? What happens when you can't do that job anymore? What happens when when you have an injury or, or a health setback that takes you out of that? What happens when you retire and you don't have that thing anymore? If you're basing your security and your joy and your happiness on anything that's material in nature or human in nature, the psalm told us that it's going to pass away. It's going to come to nothing. I've talked to countless numbers of people who come in and the, their statement is something like, Dave, I, I'm just not feeling the joy in my life. I'm trying to find happiness. I'm like, well, where are you looking? A lot of times the answer is in things that are going to perish, things that are circumstantial, things that... You know, we, we might invest a whole lot of time and energy and money in, but when something turns and it shifts a little bit, it really rocks our world. It reminds me, you know, when Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount was, was talking, uh, he, he gave this little parable about uh, uh, the wise man and the foolish man. You remember that one? The, the wise man built his foundation that was on something that was really solid. And so when the storms came and, and the rains and the floods came up, what happened? His... What he built stood firm. But there was a foolish person who just built their place on sand. And when, when the rains came and the winds and the, the waters started to rise, that sand shifted 
beneath them, and everything collapsed. The, the psalmist gives us this warning, folks. In verses 3 and 4, don't put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Don't put your trust in the material stuff. Don't put your hope and faith. Don't stake your joy on things that are circumstantial because all of those are going to pass away and they're going to return to the dust from which they came. Your plans are at risk of coming to nothing. But then look at, look at how the whole psalm that's your nugget of wisdom. Look at how the whole psalm turns at verse number 5. And this is where we're given a beatitude. Verse 5 says, Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. And so I went back and I, and I looked at the original Hebrew text, and I think that you could also translate the first word of that um, phrase as joyful are those whose help is the God of Jacob. Or happy are those is also appropriate, who place their hope in the Lord. See, the psalmist right here, he's rejoicing in the Lord. He is pointing us back to God. He's, he's writing to a people who are tempted to put all of their hope and faith and they're staking their joy and their outlook on life on circumstantial things that are going to perish and pass away. They're looking to the princes. They're looking to leaders who are going to lead them in security. But you know what? We know how that goes in our own day and age. It doesn't always work out for us. And if our hope and joy is put on the shoulders of one person who we just elevate up as a leader, this almost says it could likely to crash down. And maybe for a time it works out okay. But they're human. And even, even if they have some longevity, at some point they're going to pass away and they're going to return to dust and it's likely all to come down. So he's changing our focus from where we often look to the place and person who ultimately gives us true joy, and that's God, the person of Jesus Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul can say things like, rejoice always. He knows this psalm. He knows that his joy is not dependent on all the stuff that's going around him. He says to the church in Rome that God's kingdom is about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. One of the distinguishing marks of a Christian person is joy. It's one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. It's not work that we have to do all on our own. We, we sink in, we build our foundations on God, and what we're being told here is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the natural byproduct of building our life on God is a disposition of joy. And that we should all say a hearty amen and hallelujah for that. See, when we say true joy is found in the Lord, we're not saying that we shouldn't find happy and joy in our circumstances. We're not, we're not saying that at all. There's plenty of instances in the pages of our scripture where people find happiness and joy in, in stuff, uh, material stuff, in blessings, in relationship, in um, you know, moments of worship and praise. There, there are times where we find happiness and joy in the stuff that goes on around us. 
That's natural to being a human. You can enjoy life. You can be happy. It, it's, it's true that we, we do find happiness in, in those areas, but the, but the psalm reminds us that our ultimate and our lasting joy is found in the Lord, not in the stuff around us, like princes and material stuff and kings and leaders and all sorts of stuff. He's instructing us that we, that we are to rejoice in God. We are to rejoice in who God is. That's part of the psalm. We're supposed to rejoice in what God has already done. That's in the psalm. He, he says that we should rejoice in what it, God is doing in the present. So we shouldn't just look to the past to find out, okay, well, God did that then. So yes, I can be joyful and happy. But he says, keep your eyes focused. Look out your windshield and find places where God is still at work. And if you're looking, you'll see them all over the place. And finally, he says in the psalm that we ought to be able to find joy and we ought to be able to rejoice in God at the prospect of what God is yet to do. See, the season of Advent, we're awaiting an arrival. And we're awaiting an arrival that already happened a long time ago. And we celebrate it year after year after year. But Jesus also said, I will return. And so in the midst of our celebration of Jesus' first advent, we rejoice in God and what he is yet to do, that Jesus is yet to come. And so one, of, one prayer that's very appropriate for the advent season for all the time is, come Lord Jesus, come. Because that's what we are looking forward to. See, we find that joy happens, almost like a byproduct. When we realize that God's exuberance, that God's vitality flow from Him into us through the Holy Spirit. It's not something that you necessarily have to go off and stir up and find on your own. It's something that God will fill you with. And when we pray the prayer of Psalm 146, see what we're doing is we're rejoicing and we're declaring faith. We're, we're declaring that despite our circumstances, we trust God because he is creator, because he is sustainer, because he is redeemer, because he is restorer, because he is the salvation giver. If you go back through and you look at how this is laid out here, it says that the psalmist says of God these things. He says, we praise God because he is the maker of heaven and earth. He remains faithful forever. That means he endures. Where we will fail and all of our stuff will just kind of go away, God is the one who endures forever. We praise God because he upholds the cause of the oppressed. We praise God because he is a provider. We praise God because he sets the captives free. 
We praise God because he gives sight to the blind and he lifts up those who are bowed down. He watches over the foreigner. He sustains the fatherless and he sustains the widow. And for all of these things, we should shout hallelujah. There's reason to rejoice that God's justice and mercy is coming to bear in this world all around us. And we pray for it to continue. But there's two lines in, in what we read that in our more modern ear, our, our more modern understanding, um, might prove to be a little problematic for us, at least at the outset. See, the psalmist says in verse 8, the second half of verse 8, he says that God loves the righteous. And then in the very next verse, in, in verse 9, the second half of verse 9, he says that God frustrates the ways of the wicked. So we're talking about righteous on one hand and, and, and wicked on the other. And in our modern understanding of righteous and wicked, what I think comes to mind first is, is that we, we relabel righteous and wicked as good people and bad people. Is that a fair assessment? If we hear righteous, we think, oh, good people, people who do good things. And when we hear the word wicked to describe somebody, we think of, oh, they're a bad person and they do bad things. That's, that's how our modern ear hears that. And so when we hear it that way, the righteous and the wicked, what's our temptation? Hey, I'm good. I'm righteous because I'm certainly not wicked. Because what happens is, our human minds are ones that immediately go to comparison. And we look around our life, we look around the room, no, you don't have to look right now, um, especially to the people who brought you here. <clears throat> but we go through life in this mode of comparison. We're taught to do this at a young age. Like, well, yeah, compared to so-and-so, man, I, I look pretty good. <laughs> And so we, we, we tend to think that we fall into the righteous category and we're not part of the wicked category. And when we think we're in the righteous category, then we think all is good. And so, you know, we're at risk of not thinking that we need to confess anything. We're, not, we're at risk of not feeling like we need to repent of anything. And, we, and heaven forbid, we don't need anybody to save us if we're already righteous. That's some of the temptation that we go through as humans. Is we remove ourselves from the wicked category and, and all of the things that the Bible says about, as about the wicked. We hear this term in what uh, you might say, we, we, we might hear this term moralistically. And there is an element of that. There is a moral side of righteous and wicked. But in this psalm here, and oftentimes in the Bible, what the author's are getting at is the issue of who we trust. To be righteous means to trust that one's life fundamentally depends on God. To be righteous means that the deepest recesses of our heart we know that we, that our lives are determined by God, that, that, that we trust God above all else. That we aren't the center of our own existence, that God is 
the center. In biblical terms, to be wicked means to be self-ruled rather than God-ruled. Did you hear that? The wicked are those who are self-ruled rather than God-ruled. And for us, in this North American culture, that ought to smack us right between the eyeballs. Because we have been proclaimed to live in an age of self-centeredness. We live in a very autonomous uh, time, and, and the literal way to describe autonomy is to be ruled by yourself, to be self-centered. To be the law unto oneself. And so when the biblical authors wrestle with this idea of righteous and wicked, they're really pointing their finger on us, and they're really calling us to a decision. Are you going to be God-centered, or are you going to be self-centered? And in this psalm of praise, with that, that nugget of wisdom and this blessing, the, the, the author has, has set up two things. He's pointed this out to us. The righteous are the ones who trust in God, and you build on that, and you find your joy, and you find your strength, uh, your ability to move forward in life. You build it on God. On the other hand, those who are, he would say, wicked are those who are more self-centered, self-determining, autonomous beings who want to rule their lives themselves. And they don't put their trust in God. And he says, he gives us that warning. The wisdom is that will all come crashing down. Calls us to a decision. Do you put your, he says, do not put your trust in princes where there is no ultimate help. Instead, in verse 5, he said, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob. So we rejoice. We praise the Lord. Scripture affirms that happiness and true joy belong to those who know their help is in the Lord. And, and in our praise, we acknowledge His rule and our dependence, and it's totally counterintuitive to what the world will teach us. And that's not a new thing for Jesus, is it? Jesus came and his way turned the notions of society upside down. He came as Messiah. And the people had a pretty good understanding of what they expected Messiah to be. And when Jesus went about his ministry, it got people's attention in some really good ways, but in some negative ways, because they were they were hearing these notes that this is the Messiah and they were pairing that side by side with, with their expectations of what Messiah was, this guy is supposed to save us physically, militaristically. He's supposed to kick out those Romans. He's supposed to restore the right worship in the temple. He's supposed to bring us back to the high days of our existence in the past. We don't see somebody coming in, you know, all mighty and fierce, and 
We don't see him going around and gathering up an army and training them to be able to, to stand up to these Romans and push them out of there and reclaim their territory. We see him turning the other cheek. We see him laying his hands on lepers, giving sight to the blind, confused people. We're told that John the Baptist was the forerunner of Jesus. John the Baptist landed himself in prison. Matthew chapter 11, you can read through it if you want. It's verses 2 through 11. Um, John is in prison, and he's looking out. He's hearing the rumors of Jesus, and I think that he believes that Jesus is the one to come. He's the Messiah, but he's filled with a little bit of doubt as he's there in prison. He's like, I've, I've lived my life preparing the way for the Messiah. And I look out, and I hear the reports and they don't quite line up to what I was expecting. And so he sends his disciples to find Jesus, and he sends them with a question. And the question is, are you the one that is to come, or should we be looking for somebody else? John the Baptist, the preparer of the way, doubted, questioned. Hey, the way you're going about and doing this really turning upside down what we are expecting, Jesus, and we don't, we don't know. Can you help us out? And what did Jesus say? Do you remember that? It sounds a whole lot like the list that the psalmist gave us in Psalm 146. He sent John's disciples back and he says, go tell him what you have heard and what you have seen, that I have given sight to the blind that captives are going free. All of those things you have seen, all those things that didn't happen in the pages of the Old Testament, this isn't part of your history. Nobody had ever received their sight back in the Old Testament. And in Jesus, it comes to fruition. Go tell Brother John that the Messiah is here and that he is coming and he is fulfilling a different scriptural narrative than the one you're expecting. He isn't coming with power and might in a military sort of way. He isn't going to go in and overturn all of the, the stuff in the temple and, and kick all of those people out. He's going to do it from within, and he's going to do it one person at a time. He's going to give sight where it's needed. He's going to set the people free who are in bondage, not just physically, but who are just captive in their spirit. It's work that he still does. You go tell, you go tell John that it's okay. Jesus is in the business of turning our lives upside down. Can I get an amen for that one? Yeah. When you let him in, when you, when you, when you take the advice of this psalm and you come to that decision point and you say, you know what, I'm not going to be self-centered anymore. I'm going to live my life and I'm going to be God-centered. You got, you know, there's some tough work ahead. It will fill you with unending joy, but it's not easy work. And that's okay. There's stuff that we should struggle through in life so that we can get strengthened and, and grow stronger and, and, and become better because people who meet Jesus don't leave that experience the same person. He, be, he makes all things new. You leave a transformed person. 
It doesn't mean that you're instantly, totally, 100% fixed and, and leave all of those, you know, hang-ups and habits behind you, but Jesus walks alongside you and says, I can help you with that. He fills you with his Holy Spirit so that you can move forward in a transforming sort of way. I'm going to get all wound up and, and take us out of Psalm here, but... Sounds like what the psalmist was declaring about God is happening in the person of Jesus. I love the line in here. It said, The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. And I think there's two ways that you can hear that phrase, bowed down. Jesus lifts those who are hunched over, and crippled, maybe physically. We've been praying about that. Maybe you're hunched over and crippled emotionally or relationally or spiritually. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. If you're hunched over and crippled, the Lord, he grabs your elbow and he lifts you up. He will do that work. You find joy. That's why we're praising the Lord is because he does things like that. But the, the phrase bowed down I think also gives us a picture of our posture before God. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. If you're upright and vertical like this, unwilling to submit, unwilling to lay your life before God, unwilling to, to bow down before him and call on his name and say, I surrender my life. The Lord's not going to lift up people with this posture because you're unwilling, you're self-centered, autonomous. But when we prostrate ourselves, before the Lord, and we bow down. The psalmist says, the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. So this praise that we're doing, it's a liturgical act. We sing, we shout our praises to the Lord, hallelujah, but it's also a way of living. And if we truly believe that our lives belong to God and not to ourselves, it calls us into a very specific way of living. Jesus calls us into the work that he does. Verse 1 says, praise the Lord, I will praise God with my, whole, uh, with my soul. If you go back and you look at it, you could also say, and I think it might even be, be a better translation to say that, praise the Lord, I will praise God with my whole life with all I am, not just at my innermost being, that's part of it for sure, but if we let all of this transforming work, if we, if we let God come in and, and we surrender our lives to him and we only keep it inside us, that's only part of it. Because the gospel calls us to, to release that, to let it overflow and, and infect all of the other people around us. And so I praise God with my whole self. It's a lifelong act of praise verbally, 
in the acts of service that we do in our community, in our church, in our, wherever we go. And I think the world is desperately trying to find the answer to the question, where do I find true happiness? Folks, we, we read about it. I can't say it any more plainly than that. True happiness is found in the person of Jesus Christ. Right here on Pink Candle Sunday, the people of God said, Amen. Amen. How about 